for forests of an organization working towards restoring agricultural land so welcome kritika it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast to talk about farmers for forests thanks anish excited to be here so you launched this initiative in 2019 so what is the mm-hmm. idea behind it um right okay so essentially in um 2009 uh, when i was an undergraduate student um i was doing a lot of work around um anna hazari's village raigan siddhi uh, in maharashtra and uh, also just trying to understand uh, because he did a lot of community based development uh, there and we were just trying to understand and and the the like he spent 20 years in the village transform this village and um you know the government tried to scale this up to from one village to 300 villages and it wasn't as successful and we were just uh, i was just trying to understand what was the reason for the success and one of the reasons that we realized is that in villages where there was natural capital uh, where environmental degradation was low um you know these villages were able to use the resources to really uh, um, expand development and this was something so this i i studied this in 2009 and 2010 and at that time i had focused a lot on social capital when i was analyzing i was just looking through the data later in 2016 we realized that uh, villages that have have restored environment or have already have an existing strong environmental a uh, framework etc in place were doing really well and the idea was you know how do you promote um this at scale um right because we see a lot of examples of you know like small successes uh, etc whether it's forest protection or agroforestry or which is the two things that we work on um but how do you do this at scale and when we sort of did like a good literature review we realized that payments for ecosystem services which is essentially adequately compensating communities for the environmental services that they are providing uh, is one way i think to really do this quickly and do it at a scale uh, which is the idea that we wanted to try out and uh, that's how we started farmers for forests so could you just elaborate a bit on your operating model yes uh, so essentially we work with communities on the ground uh, so we do both forest protection and agroforestry so in forest protection essentially what we do is we work with communities to reduce incidences of forest fire and illegal logging uh with other farmer communities we essentially work with them to transition them to agroforestry from monoculture which is uh, let's say doing sugarcane or onion or things which are very fertilizer and water intensive to more biodiverse um just agroforestry so we work with the communities to do these interventions on the ground then we measure ecosystem services when i say ecosystem services we just look at primarily two things which is carbon and biodiversity uh what is uh the carbon and biodiversity benefits of doing this on the ground and then we essentially compensate financially compensate community is for this uh, that is one way and then we also work with them for them to kind of get financially remunerative models around this so for example if it's forestry then uh, existing forest then there's honey and bamboo and then if it's agroforestry it's a lot of uh, fruits and uh, again bamboo and things like that so the idea is to make a uh, forestry agroforestry as financially viable for communities um 
as say something like sugarcane or uh, millet cultivation is because if it's financially viable for communities, communities will continue to do it in the long term and at scale. Uh, so how do you ensure that farmers and communities get an adequate income from protecting the environment, uh, the same that they would get maybe from doing, uh, let's say, timber cultivation or sugarcane or things like that. Uh, so that's essentially what we try to figure out uh, with communities. You mentioned about converting monocultures to agroforest. So firstly, what exactly is an agroforest and why is it so important to reduce the dependence on monoculture? So a couple of things. So monocultures is anything where like farmers, so say you're a farmer, you have two acres of land and on that two acres, you're doing only rice cultivation or you're doing only soybean cultivation or you're doing only, um, um, le let's say something like uh, sugarcane. So now the problem with this is, so I'll just give you the example of Gachiroli, which is one of the districts where we work. So they do rice cultivation, which is actually not very environmentally unfriendly because they don't they don't use groundwater and they don't use external fertilizers. But the biggest problem that you're seeing, that we're seeing with this rice cultivation in the last couple of years is that rainfall has been extremely erratic. Like, yes, last year there was a flood. This year, the rain has been, you know, significantly lower than expected rainfall. So communities are significantly losing their rice harvest, right? So they're hardly earning seven or 8,000 rupees. Uh, so now in this, instead of if you're doing rice cultivation, let's say you do one acre of rice cultivation, you do one acre of bamboo. Uh, bamboo is incredibly uh, resilient in the sense that the bamboo plantations that have not received rainfall for three months are also still surviving. Uh, very easy to plant. You don't require anything. Requires much less water um, than rice grows very naturally in that region. So now, if you're a farmer and you're transitioning from doing, you know, rainfall dependent um, agriculture to doing um, this bamboo uh, on one acre, you're essentially able to get from year one um, an income of you know nearly ten thousand or so rupees, which comes from the ecosystem services, which is essentially in this case primarily carbon uh, sequestration and a little bit of biodiversity because with along with the bamboo we plant about 10, 5 to 10% trees, which are just for sure biodiversity, trees that are decanyling in Maharashtra. So trees like bale or trees like Dalbergia latifolia, which is shisham, um, things like that. Uh, so this essentially from the carbon, from the biodiversity, the farmers get paid uh, for, the, for three years. And then from year four onwards, they can sustainably harvest the bamboo. So from the farmer's point of view, they are moving towards a more climate resilient form of cultivation. Uh, they were getting 10, you know, seven, 8,000 with rice with this. You, for a ton of bamboo, a minimum, uh, you, you can sell it for 5,000 to 6,000 rupees in the market. Um, and you can continue to harvest from year three onwards. You can continue to harvest that bamboo every year. So essentially what we're seeing with communities is that communities that are getting this income from forests. So one is like doing uh, more agroforestry and two is like already relying on existing forests because they're already relying on cultivating bamboo from the forest, uh, doing maua cultivation, doing tendu cultivation. So 
this is proving to be far more climate resilient than traditional agriculture and it, it requires lesser inputs uh, so this is more in the forest area than in uh, areas like Maratwada, which is in central Maharashtra, there we are essentially transitioning farmers to doing uh, mango, lemon, or sitafal uh, guava, sitafal uh, aula, um, which requires 90% less water, doesn't use any chemical fertilizers, uh, and is more climate resilient for farmers than doing, let's say, only sugarcane or onion. Again, along with the sort of 90% um, fruit trees and bamboo, 5 to 10% trees are bio for both the biodiversity and the carbon sequestration. So how have farmers responded to your initiatives? Uh, pretty well, actually. So in the first couple of years when we started, we were not doing a lot of fruit trees. Uh, we were doing more trees which had just pure biodiversity value uh, which didn't have a very big commercial value and the take up of that and selling that to farmers was very hard uh, because for, from a farmer's point of view uh, the economics matter a lot but when we've kind of transitioned the model to include what farmers want uh, but at the same time try to make it more ecologically friendly than what they were doing before um, the response has been really good uh, because what we realized is that if you want this to kind of stay for 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, you have to have the communities on board. Like the community really needs to believe in what they're doing because at the end of the day, it is their land, it is their livelihood. Um, so if we are not able to find that balance between ecology and economy for them, for the farmer, uh, whatever you do is just not going to sustain in the long run. One of the key criticisms of afforestation projects is the low sapling survival rate. But this is not the case with farmers for forests. So how do you ensure a high sapling survival, survival rate through your afforestation project? So, we, so our, honestly, in the first few years, our afforestation projects didn't have a high success rate because we weren't giving farmers the saplings we wanted, right? We were giving them wild trees and farmers didn't want wild trees. But once you're able to kind of find that balance between what the farmer wants. So earlier we were doing 80% biodiverse trees, just 20% fruit trees. Um, and that model didn't work that well because farmers wanted more fruit trees. Uh, so what we realized is that we have a choice, which is we can work with, let's say, 20, 30 farmers who agree to doing 80% biodiversity and 20% fruit trees. Or we can work with 5,000, 10,000 farmers who agree to 90, 95% fruit trees and 5 to 10% biodiverse trees. And we're getting sort of the same number. And I think sometimes, you know, because this was one of the lessons we learned, which is you also have to look at what are the alternative land use patterns because if for example we don't you know kind of work with the farmers uh farmers are going to give that land maybe to uh you know just sell the the soil on that land for road construction um right because at the end of the day the farmers economy matters so is it better that the farmer sells the land for so soil on the land for road construction or is it better that the farmer plants 90 percent fruit trees and five to 10% biodiverse trees. So when we were trying to design for scale, these were some of the things that 
we were thinking of because earlier our idea was like hey you know is more fruit trees just bringing getting in biodiversity but i think the way to also think about it is like if it weren't more fruit trees that land would maybe just be soybean cultivation so this is not the most perfect model in terms of ecology but it's also much better than what a farmer would have done otherwise um and it's sustainable and scalable, which was like kind of a new line of thinking which we had to introduce. Um, and we only work on agriculture when we do afforestation. It's only done on agriculture land. Uh, we don't do afforestation on grasslands or commons land or things like that. It's it's land that would have otherwise been used for agriculture. So this is still better than what the alternative land use would have been. Why is the proper selection of site? so critical for the success of afforestation projects so you know honestly again with with the the only reason we don't do it on grasslands is because most of these grasslands are owned and joint managed jointly by the community and i think our model works much better for individual farmers but what we've seen is that you know of course you shouldn't plant on grasslands because that's not what would work there or that's not what's ecologically sustainable there. But what we've also seen is that in a lot of cases, like the best scenario would be for the grassland to exist as is, right? Like we have farmers who have who own hundred acres of grassland where, you know, they had um the we we saw a lot of like just the grassland restoring naturally, uh, clumps of um, you know, these tree gills that came up, uh, you see that pattern repeated everywhere clearly just planting fruit trees or anything on that land wouldn't work uh, but and and for the the sort of challenge that we run up against is that right now the farmers have let it be a grassland and you know you could see porcupine and nilgai and all of these things uh, but if the farmers were not able to get a remuneration, their alternate land use was that they were going to give that land for either solar panels or to solar panel developers. They were going to sell the soil to um, for road construction. Or the third was they were going to rent out the land for open, um, open kind of uh, grazing to other farmers, uh, like nomadic farmers. So for us, the real struggle was that like, if you have to convince the farmer who owns this land, who is an owner, who for whom it's an asset, to keep it as a grassland, how do you financially compensate that farmer to do that? And philanthropy can do that to a certain extent. But even with philanthropy, nobody is willing to pay to do it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. So with that, like if you're a farmer and let's say you have, you know, 100 acres of grassland, thriving ecosystem, you haven't done anything, it's very far away from where you live. Now, if I have to convince you to keep that land as is, how do I make the economics work for you? Um, and that is the sort of question that we keep running up against. Because if you have to do this at scale and you have to do this sustainably, you have to make the economics work for the farmer. Um, in most cases, we are not able to do that, which is why these lands then get, you know, like either get into soil mining or solar panels and things like that. So there needs to be something beyond, um, you know, maybe ecotourism or or whatever that like there has to be a model that that works for the farmers. Uh, so that's why we don't work on 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 these lands because we don't know what what a model is 
uh, that would financially work here for farmers. So what is your long-term vision for farmers for forest? Um, I think if we have to, um, you know, do restoration at scale, uh, it has to be done in a way that communities benefit from this, right? So for example, just to give you an example, one of the things we're trying to do is that we're trying to get farmers better prices uh, for maua that has been harvested without anthropogenic fires. Um, because these forest fires often are lit to harvest maua, they get out of control, burn vast tracts of forest. So how do you convince, and, and the problem is like farmers have been, two communities have been doing this for years and it worked out okay because there was enough forest and there was enough, um, you know, but as the forest has declined, all of these practices are, have, have really harmful effects. So how do you kind of make the economics work for the farmer? How do you get them a better price? Um, because harvesting maua without fires will require more effort on their part. Um, so how do you kind of convince them to um, harvest maua without lighting fires and financially compensate them in the long term? So these are some of the things that I think we're trying to figure out, which is how do you find that balance between doing ecologically sound things and ensuring that farmers get adequately compensated for eco doing ecologically sound things so that they have uh, enough incentive to continue doing it in the long term without philanthropy or without something else having to kind of constantly prop that up. I think that's what we are trying to figure out. Uh, there are no easy answers. And my final question is that how can individuals contribute to farmers for forests? I think, I think honestly what I've realized is the biggest thing that we as individuals can do is like um, mindful consumerism. So, for example, if you are buying from brands that are selling probably more expensive products but uh, have supply chains that are deforestation free have um, uh, you know products that are ethically sustainably harvested costs a lot more but I think like if companies kind of get that message from more and more consumers which is happening I think that in itself would would probably be far bigger than you know individually contributing to farmers for forests that is my final question for this interview thank you so much for your time thanks anish and that's the end of another episode of the think wildlife podcast if you enjoyed this episode and would love to hear more don't forget to press the subscribe button and obviously share with your friends.